I'm Al Filris, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities. And we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash pensound. Poem Talk has once again gone on the road to Bolinas, California, on a little sea-surrounded peninsula just north of San Francisco. I'm joined here in Bolinas at the lovely home of Stephen Radcliffe by Lily Applebaum, Chris Martin, and Zach Cardner, who traveled west with me, and also by our three Poem Talkers today, by Julia Block, who has also traveled west from Philly to her old northern California stomping grounds. And today I found out that it really was stomping grounds, because you've done a lot of hiking around here. Uh, where she's been giving readings, the poet, teacher, scholar, editor, whose recent books include Valley Fever 2015, a more recent chapbook called Hollywood Fever. No, it's not Hollywood Fever. Hollywood Forever. Hollywood Forever. Too many fevers there. (laughs) And the 2013 Letters to Kelly Clarkson, which was a finalist for the 2013 Lambda Literary Award, whose scholarly and critical interests include formal hybridity, the post-war long poem, and gender and ideology and the place of the lyric, and who I'm thrilled to say is the director of the creative writing program at the University of Pennsylvania and former student of the aforementioned poet and host of our gathering today, Stephen Radcliffe, publisher of Avenue B Press, longtime director of the creative writing program at Mills College, where he worked with Julia some years ago, who is Boston-born but has lived here in Bolina since 1973, author of 20-plus books of poems, including Ideas, Mirror, Distance, Sculpture, and Spaces in the Light Said to Be Where One Comes From, whose recent triptych trilogy consists of three books and maybe more, a thousand pages and a thousand days in duration. And let's make that five such books. Talk about duration. And whose main concern these days has been how experience in the three-dimensional world can be translated, transcribed to the two-dimensional page and whose mesmerizing repetitive Instagrams, mostly of Bolinas seascapes, I not only follow closely but long for daily. (laughs) And finally, I'm thrilled to say we're also joined here by Joanne Kiger, whose on-time poems 2005-2014 was published by City Lights in 2015, among whose many, many other books are As Ever, a book of selected poems published in 2002, Just Space, which gathers poems written between 1979 and 1989, and a book I'm currently obsessed with, Joanne, with Strange Big Moon, the Japan and Indian Journals, 1960-64, to whose roots poetically and personally and spiritually are here in the Bay Area and indeed here in Bolinas, whose poems often show a mindfulness of daily events and the Northern California landscape and often use form and shape as outgrowths of subject matter. Steve, thank you so much for hosting us here at your house. My it's, pleasure. It's great to Al, see you again. Thank and you. Joanne, thanks for walking down the lane. Thank you. To, to be here with us. We're so happy to visit you both here in Bolinas. And Julia, how does it feel to be back in your old, what did I say, stomping grounds? Stomping grounds, grounds. Yeah. yeah. It feels like I never left. The air is familiar. The smells are familiar. It's lovely. To, I, those of us sitting on this side of the table, Joanne and I, we should describe what the view is from mm-hmm. the white horse. There's a white horse galloping across, oh <laughs> and there's only one house visible. <laughs> there was. 
There's only one house visible, and it's oh. mythic. A white horse, riderless. That's a good omen, I think. A, a riderless. riderless white horse. And before the Tamalpais Ridge. Yeah, and and the the drought, which is obviously the bane of everyone's existence here, has created amazing colors. This is what it's usually like in the uh, summer. This drought is or no drought. Yeah. Bumblebees in the lavender. Oh, it's great. Can Native, we just can Native we do American a thousand summer. hours, a thousand pages of home talk today, and just be here forever into the night? That would be nice. That would be nice. I'm, I'm afraid we might do injustice to Whalen's poem if we talk about it for a thousand hours. Um, well, we are here today to talk about a poem by Philip Whalen, also, of course, a poet who spent important moments of his life and work in, here in Bolinas. Our poem was indeed written in Bolinas in 1968 and finished in Kyoto, Japan in 1969. It's called Life at Bolinas, the Last of California, and can be found on pages 655 through 657 in the collected poems. Philip Whalen's pen sound page includes a recording of his performance of this poem, the last poem he read at an event in Albuquerque in 1987. So here now is Philip Whalen performing Life at Bolinas. Life at Bolinas, the last of California for Margot and John Doss. The things that are down should be up. The things that are up should be down. Confusion, mess, and itchiness. Rearrange. I have to rearrange the world. Make a demand. Gold rises. Crudel. What goes here? Force majeure. The world being oblong with chrysanthemums. Explosion of shape, charge, instant paisley steel plate tattoo. Curiously, they went under, under the waves, undulation, unhesitatingly, no thought of strength or where they could straight ahead. Yum. Straight out of the basket, that stuff is gray matter with everything already there. Three brains? Yes, out through the screams of laughing, drums, flutes, right and left hand music, voices and hand clapping. Whoop! Brilliance! Leaks out the cracks around the stony door, out through the gong clang. Whoop! They caught... They got the sun by the wrist, yarded her out of the cave, while the girl who did the naughty dance covers herself calmly. Oh, ask what you want. Book, book, cough, uncivilized stove insurance in the living room. Sit down, put in your order and be patient. Total failure of civilization? Bong, whoop, clap, wiggle, blink, squash flower. Chrysanthemum puzzle. Long past midnight, quiet house. Purple, green-eared, smiling bat. Call on myself. Demand one word more. A new start. Great inky swashes arranged. A painting. A new life. Wet, dry, across the world. Oh-ho! Every time a distinct shape mark. Who cares how long it takes? Desire. Candy hand. Toothsome obscurities. Candy hand, sugar baby. Who knows why kind of fun. At Duxbury Point, a few thousand feet from here, the wind blows heavy, 35 miles per hour all night long. Big lights at the post office illuminate Brighton Avenue, the raccoons can see to get across. As I pass through the dark dining room, I perceive that each chair is occupied by dwarf ghoul corpse, yammering, decomposing, power. Blithering dead leaves along the ground, crooked sunlight, falling smoke, black wind. 
electric power failure woke me up. I broke the kitchen clock. Franco and Judy, hungry in Zurich. Well, I know we're going to be able to go everywhere and anywhere because there's so much here. But can we start by just contemplating the use of the word last in the subtitle? Does it, Steve, does it make sense to you? Is it, is it last in the sense of the furthest end of the continent or is it last because it's a survival? What do you, what do you make of that? That's a question, Al. And the other word I would look at in the title that is connected to that is the word right above it, the second word in the first line of the title, at, mm. which has a short A sound also mm. and a T. But li life in Bolinas is uh, not the same as life at Bolinas. But also last, uh, it could be a farewell to California, but I don't think it was. I don't know when if he wrote this uh, near the end of his Bolinas stay. He went to Kyoto not long after he wrote it. His first stint in Bolinas is November 67. So he's been here a while when he starts the poem. Joanne, do you, does last make sense to you? The last of California? Yes. I mean, like an end of an era yes, for that's him. What I, was thinking. I mean, he's this is his second trip to Japan. He first goes in what nineteen sixty eight. Uh, yeah, the at the at certainly uh, draws your attention to the, the preposition. Draws your it has that like awkward little sense. To the two of you who've spent many years here in Bolinas, I direct this question. I mean, do you recognize the Bolinas, Wayland's Bolinas, that you know in this poem? Are there bits and pieces of, can you point out a few of those? Well, things? this, you know, essentially his Bolinas days goes from a 68 to 71. And at that point, Bolinas was a fairly empty town. It hadn't been really, quote, discovered. That When I came here in 68, there was 500 people living here. And it was mostly, it was the excitement was from the high school surfers that had come out and discovered Bolinas and came out, you know, and started <laughs> surfing out here. Otherwise, yeah. it was, there was, the, there was no, very little development on the Mesa. The downtown had these houses that had somehow continued from the turn of the last century. And the, and the Doss house, uh, the, where Philip stayed, was an yeah. old house, too. The old, sea captain. All those, all those houses kind of, on Brighton. A little Brighton. better built. And he dedicates the poem to them. To John and Margot Doss. Right. Presumably, and Margot Dr. was a Dr. feature John. writer at San Francisco Chronicle, and he was a doctor, and they had a second she, house. And there. a poet. The, the Margot was, uh, when I was a kid growing up and reading the Chronicle, you know, Margot Doss had a she column called The Bay Area at Your Feet. And she on went on walks page. all of the time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, she was probably writing about, you know, this part of California. Julie, you were out here long enough to have a sense of Bolinas as a place that was, that people felt was not simply insular by way of the geography, but also insular by way of people wanting it to not be overrun. This poem could be thought of as fairly insular in its references. You sort of have to know Bolinas to get it. But that, but I don't know Bolinas except for this visit today, and it seems to me that I'm getting a feel for it. Does one get a feel for this if you're not familiar with the scene, Julia? Well, I read the poem in Philadelphia, not in Bolinas, and so I had the experience of reading the poem very far away and not being in this place and not having my memories kind of well up until we arrived here 
before this recording. What really struck me about the poem is how much it's a poem about writing a poem. Like, you know, in the beginning, we get the things that are down should be up, the things that are up should be down. That could be about this place, that could be about a kind of topsy-turviness of a new place or a place that you visit and go away and come back to. But it seems to me that there's also a lot in the poem, beginning with those two lines, about observation in general and about kind of using the poem to capture, you know, kind of a moving experience. Moving, I mean, I mean, as in I'm thinking about like the way the sea moves and the way the poem itself is referring to way to the way the, the water is moving. Hmm. Can we, Joanne, try to make sense of the up and down at the beginning? I, I wrote, you know, the things that are down should be up. That suggests a big change, an apocalypse, a revolution of some kind. Um, and then there's the re- reference to itchiness, which I just took to be restlessness. Well, this could be written in Kyoto. This is, is his second trip, so he's not having a big culture hmm. flash. But the fact that you're sitting on the floor and you have your shelves around, you don't have the same kind of uh, ease of uh, you know, getting in and out of a place. I like that sense that, um, you know, in the dateline at the end, it says, you know, ends in Kyoto, but he wrote... That's well, they when go he back and forth by, inside the, Yeah, but maybe the he, put, maybe that he, he wrote, wrote that there at the beginning of, say, I'm going to pull this poem out and work on it and finish it now, and so something well, that I was written he, in Kyoto. I think he just, I don't know when he decided to write this, but I think these were written in bits and pieces in his notebook, and when he decided to pull it together, right. he had some, you know, inner composition that, you know, that that worked for him. Someone told me how um, he would lay his papers out on the floor, you know, and he wrote, remember, he wrote everything by hand, his original manuscripts so he could take out you know, sections um, like he was scoring some kind of composition mm-hmm. it's very notebooky and all because it seems to be a collage of scenes but it's also as you say constantly referring and julia suggested this con- constantly referring to the writing of this poem i'm thinking of a section right in the middle quiet house purple green eared smiling but call on myself, demand one word more oh, yeah. you know, suggests that he needs to write. And then you get this almost calligraphic painterly writing, a new start, great inky swashes arranged, a painting, a new life. I was just riffing when I saw, when I saw that and I thought, okay, he's come to Bellinus. He's trying to write. He's found a place where he wants to write a quiet house that gets referred to at the end again. And he seems to be taking the Kyoto, his interest in calligraphy and in writing, seriously as a command to himself to write. Julia, you're nodding. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I circled desire, and he, he prints desire with an exclamation point. Right. And so every time a distinct shape mark, who cares how long it takes, who cares how long it is past midnight, or you know, what, all the things that might distract me from this moment, but the desire to write and the desire to take things down into the notebook is what's holding the poem together and helps it come through. You know, I think uh, one of the little inserted sections, it's right on the first page in italics, the curiously they went under, under the waves, undulation, unhesitatingly, no thought of strength or whether they could straight ahead. Is that drowning? I think it's surfing. 
Joanne mentioned, uh, I think, you know, you said (laughs) really nicely, one of the big excitements, or maybe the only big excitement, was all the high school kids who discovered surfing. So he's observing. Curiously, they went under, under the waves, undulation, unhesitatingly, no thought of strength or where they could straight ahead. Yum. Straight out of the basket, that stuff is gray matter with everything already there. Three brains? Yes, out through the... Screams of laughing, drums, flutes, right and left hand music, voices and hand clapping. Whoo! Brilliance leaks out the cracks around the stony door, out through the gong clang. Whoop! We seem to have three italicized indented sections in which some kind of music making, wildness, maybe partying is going on. Does anybody make sense of that? Back in the 70s, when I moved here in 73, there was something called the Sun Festival. Oh, right. And it was always was in like May Day or something. And it was yeah, the blessing of then. the babies and the, pil- the pilgrims would but, gather on the sewer ponds and dance. And But drums, flutes. I mean, I think this, yeah. is, a, this is Japanese music, you know, like uh, Shinto Shrine or temple music, you know, it's going on all the time. There's He's also got the gong clang hoop. Yeah. Right. Uh, Tell us about the Amaterasu. Amaterasu, they caught the they caught the sun by the wrist, yarded her out of her cave. That's Amaterasu, the sun god uh, from three thousand years ago, who was all the emperors are descended from. And she got into some kind of fight with her brother and went into this cave, and there was no sun. So uh, they tried to think of all these things to bring her out. They hung a mirror by the door, and then they had some girl go do a striptease, and finally she stuck her head out the door. And she went she, did some really good research here. And she, there it is in, it, the, in yeah. the poem. I so thought it she, was Bolinas, but I think you <laughs> waited this long to spring it on us. <laughs> so she. That's so anyway, they get her to come out. They grab her, and <laughs> she brings back the sun. Uh, and it's you know it's it's their creation myth. Sun, I love that because goddess. can we connect the creation myth that he's drawing from the Kyoto thinking and experience to this going to Bellinas to write more creation myth, one word more, trying to get himself to create? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so what is the connection but, between Kyoto but, and, and Well, Bolinas? I think you could. Well, I think I, he wrote that when he was in Kyoto. Yeah, know? but I Mostly think... Mostly he writes these in two different places. I mean, I this is 11, months, 11 months of writing. No, yeah. I, I think that the line about the girl who did the naughty dance covers herself calmly. That's really so kind of graphic, descriptive. Maybe there was nothing like that happening in Bolinas in the 60s. I doubt it. I think that those things were happening in the 70s in Bolinas. Well, so. certainly the closing of the poem, which takes us back to Bolinas, it's night, the wind is howling, power's out, kitchen clock ticking. He's back in Bolinas, yeah. 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 And, and that's, a, that's a beautiful ending where he's, he's saying, well, here's, here's where I am, blithering dead leaves. So curiously, he ends in Zurich. Well, we he's Franco and, and Judy, that, which right. are his friends from the first trip right. yeah. that he met, Franco Beltrametti. And, oh, met them in Kyoto or in, in Bolinas? Kyoto. Yeah. In oh, Kyoto. okay. In fact, uh, yeah. he learned, Franco learned English from Philip. Oh. And then they went back to Zurich. And so he's thinking of them there. 
Yeah, well, we probably got a letter from yeah, them. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Got a uh, saying we're hungry in Zurich. <laughs> that's that's a beautiful uh, sense, though, of how and the he did poem break moved, the kitchen clock because I remember him being around. worried about that. You've annotated that too. He broke the kitchen clock. Do you know how he broke it? He did something or other. He went into the kitchen. He was the only person that was staying at the Dawes house. They had a big house b- built for a lot of people to feed. And so he was, at that one point, he goes around and has a has a, a vision of the dining room, dark dining room. Each chair is occupied by a dwarf ghoul corpse. That was a vision he had, too. I mean, I don't know what substances he was taking, but... You know, the, en- the ending of the poem, I think, is uh, really a, a great instance of how the whole poem is put together and how it works because it moves around so much. I mean, you know, from the title life at Bolinas to Zurich at the end to Kyoto. but And the details, I think, are, you know, located in Bolinas, except for the... And the letter comes there if it's not mentioned. But everything, I'm just looking here, everything in that in those last four lines, there's something... A miss. There's the dead leaves. There's the crooked sun. That beautiful line: crooked sunlight falling, smoke black wind. The electric. Then the electric power is failing. I broke the clock. Uh, they're hungry. <laughs> it's kind of bleak. It's yeah. a storm. storm it's such time. a weird combination. The elect- How does a power failure wake you up? Because presumably, when there's a power failure, everything goes quiet. Oh well, it could and everything be. goes dark. It's, so it's wind. So quiet. So it's probably be, howling wind. Yeah, the quiet, like the startling of yeah. that change, I guess, wakes you up. And then I broke the kitchen clock, which comes right after that part of the line. So all these details also are just jammed together, as if they were a string, as if they were telling one story, but right. they are actually so disparate. I, I really like the raccoon. Yeah. It's just, you know. Yeah. It, looks, it, it like reminds me of uh, totally the, real. the skunk <laughs> in Lowell's Skunk Hour. There's a, you know. Yeah. It's almost off season and the raccoons are taking over. Big um, music party going over two blocks away. Yeah, this is perfect. This, so is the have, this is the flutes. There's the flutes. The flutes and the gongs leaking out under the cracks <laughs> of the stony door. <laughs> Bong, whoop, clap, um, wiggle. I'm also interested and in, would love to hear you folks on this in the almost, dare I say it, Poundian um, historical collage moment of uh, how he gets to the line, total failure of civilization. <laughs> it's a big claim. Yeah, um, I think he makes it a lot, though, doesn't he? <laughs> he Civilization does is always failing yeah. him. And it's a question mark, and he reads it that way. But it's preceded with um, cough, uncivilized. So there's the connection mm. to civilization. Cough, uncivilized stove insurance in the living room. Sit down. Put in your order and be patient. And <laughs> then total failure of civilization. Anybody want to make some sense of that? It's a, it's a great line. It's certainly... It's a great line. Yeah. yeah. Well, it comes right after ask for what you want, book, book. And I love the way he reads that in the poem. <laughs> yeah. It really is if he's yeah. conjuring, like, I want a book. So <laughs> is put the... in your order also about asking for what you want? So at, you can ask for what you want. You can also put in your order, but you have to be patient. And then, so I don't know if it's like, oh, you say you want a total failure of civilization. You say you want to be in this remote idyllic spot where, you know, um, all of all of these things can't touch us. Like yeah. we can we can be beyond. We can be at the last edge. Nice, um, book book. Ask for what you want. This is the time of on Boar's Head, 
Harcourt Brace world. Big, big moment for him, right? Or it's just after, I guess, Joanne? He was, uh, my understanding could be wrong, is that he came to Bellinas first as Harcourt Brace in New York was finishing up this typesetting and so forth. Hmm. This, this, this was written during his first trip to Bellinas, right? Yeah, the first 68. trip starts in November of 67, and okay. here he is in so this July, is a, okay. writing, starting then to write Then his second this. trip, he comes back, which was in March of 69 to June of 71, right. to look at the proofs from Harcourt Okay, Brace. so this precedes that. Uh-huh. Okay. But book, book. I mean, I, I'm trying to read the... Well, the books are so important to him. I yeah. mean, it's like candy. I mean, there was an mm-hmm. important get book. Candy, candy, candy hand. Candy hand. Let's, let's say it really clearly so you understand it's book. You know, it's, yeah. it's fulfillment. When That's I great. mentioned that, that I would like us to talk about this poem today, all three of you separately reacted, not to say it's a bad poem, but to think, what an odd choice. Can we say for people who might be listening to us and not, you know, not very familiar with Whalen's work as a whole, can we say how this work is different from what you might encounter elsewhere and also maybe how it's, it gives you a sense of his process? How is it different and how is it the same? Or why did you think this was an odd choice other than that it's about Bellinas partly? Steve? Well, I think uh, looking at the poem, you know, first of all, listening to him reading, it's great reading, isn't it? Yes, great reading. It all goes right by you, right? I mean, because it's not a, it's not a narrative. It's not. It has a locational kind of title, but it ends in Zurich and it moves everywhere in between. You know, it's hard to get your bearings in this poem because it keeps leaping. Yeah, yeah. But I think when you sit down and do a close reading, what we're doing when we're starting to look at it, all the parts seem to fit together in a way that's uh, very interesting. And you okay. have a greater a sense kind of, of that now that we've been talking I about do. it. Yeah. yeah, I do. Because it wasn't a poem I knew. Yeah. You know, I'd never read it before. I why do you think, but and I want to hear uh, Julia and Joanne on this, but Steve, yeah. why do you think in Albuquerque this was his encore poem? Was that just an accident or no, does it mean something? I doubt it. I think he must have loved this poem. Yeah, why? I don't know. It does something. Mm. I mean, it actually puts, it probably... I can only guess, but I I could imagine that this poem puts its finger on something about his experience here. Yeah. Plus Kyoto, some of it was yeah. written there, and it meant something to him in some personal way. Yeah. You know, it's like an homage to place and also to this. In, you know, there's a whole interior world going on inside of this poem that. Yeah. We're guessing at, and he knows about. Julie, can you try the same? question but i don't know how deep your familiarity with whalen is but where, where do, how do you think this poem yeah fits? i mean it's it's um what really struck me with the poem was what's going on on the page and in this poem when i first looked at it the force majeure really <laughs> jumped out at me and so i've always since i started looking at the poem i thought about what what's unforeseen and how how the unforeseen keeps coming into the poem and then the poem pulls back to the concrete detail. So there are all these constant interruptions, and it's tempting to just read that in the language of the family of images that populate this poem, like the sea and surfing and and things, objects, people bobbing in and out of the waves. Uh, but it's obviously more than that, too. It's what Joanne just said about how how important the book was. The book is never just a bunch of 
you know, pieces of paper with ink printed on them. It's, it's about making the world or rearranging the world and remaking it almost in a Mallarmean sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Joanne, what are your thoughts about this poem in relation to Whalen's usual work? Is it unusual? No, I don't think it's unusual. There was a remark that Dick Make- Baker, his later teacher at the Zen Center, said that Philip Whalen treated uh, words as solid objects and juxtaposed them creatively. So I think you can see how he uses the words. I mean, they're musical, he's scoring the page, but they're also building blocks of somewhere. How he puts them, constructs them in, in the space he has. He wrote everything by hand, so he's very aware of the, of the relationship of the word and the, and the page and the space around it and uses that, you know, to score his voice or the timing of the page, how long it takes to get to the next word, whether it's in caps or not. Did he type these poems after the notebook? I think the final, the final step was to, to type yeah. it up. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he ever composed on the typewriter. Right. Though. I should have checked this. Did this poem appear in On Boar's Head, which would have been the next book? Does anybody know? On Bear's Head. On Bear's Head, sorry. I looked, you know, it's curious. And it wasn't in there. It's in the it's collected, not, of course. It's not in there. But, so he left it out. But the, um, in the table of contents, it, I, it, it seems fits as right though it should there. be in there, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know if he edited uh, On Bear's Head. I think that uh, Jim Kohler and, and um, what's his name? Worked on the editing, and then he came back and worked on it. And of course, the book that Philip uh, Michael Rothenberg edited, he probably just went through Philip's work and put in what he right. thought should be included, which right. means that he saved it in some kind but of. But it's not in on on Bear's head. Can can we go around? Uh, <laughs> and this is meant really for Steve and Joanne in particular, and. Um, give you a chance to recollect Philip Whalen in Bellinas, uh, something that uh, can be recorded and preserved, some encounter, some, or just a general sense of what he was like here. He, he came, I, as I understand it, first to get away from San Francisco, to find a quiet place. Joanne reminded me he didn't have a car, so he would have to get up here and he would stay and I guess he wrote, he wandered around town. What, what, what do you remember? You, you've been here since 73, so you saw him at in later when he wasn't really doing any I have uh, I never uh, saw him in Bellinas. Yeah. And uh, I knew Don Allen when I met here when I came here I knew of him but uh, I didn't meet him until he moved away and uh, he said to me when I at one point it's uh, I put this in a poem so I remember it. I read it in the Bill Berkson memorial the other day. It's strange we never met in what Bill Berkson calls Celesteville. <laughs> so, but I have no, I don't have no, I'm sure Joanne is the person to really put your question to. Joanne, what do you want to say about Philip Whalen in Bellinas? What was it like? I think he came him? out here because Margot had a place and invited him, and he was always looking for a patron. Uh, which is finally why his eventual 30-some years at the Zen Center worked so well. He was taken care of. He had a place to sleep. There was food that was there, and he could focus his studies or his meditation. Uh, He was out here 
She came out in January of 72 and invited Philip to come and live at the Zen Center. And bypassing all these other kind of, you know, <laughs> other people that had signed up and filled out their forms. Yeah. He said, come and stay and you don't have oh, to boy. do anything. <laughs> Just come and stay here. And Philip at that point had been petitioning the University of California. I'll do anything you want. Just let me stay there yeah. and have an organ to play and just yeah. feed me. You know, he was not willing to step into the hmm. nine to five world. Hmm. So his time in Bolinas went from the, what, late 60s to the, yeah, to say 71. So it wasn't a long time. And right. at that point, Bolinas right. was just trying to figure out where it was going. It was in 71, they declared a water moratorium and they became very political at that point because that meant that they couldn't build any more houses. So, and there was a lot of young people here, Harvard graduates that somehow, Orville Shell and a lot of people who took over the water department and started to be part of the um, political structure, such as it was, that held the town together, which is the water board. So he wasn't part of that. Right, right, exactly. His social scene was uh, with poets when he shared this place with Joe Brainerd. I think he saw a lot of people that was very nice, but he decided it was too many people hmm. after a while. Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on in this poem, and we could, and we all prepared all kinds of th things to say, but why don't we uh, go around one more time and, and uh, allow each other to uh, add one final thought about the poem or about Waylon and Bellinas. Uh, that we didn't get a chance to say. So, Steve, we'll start with you. One last thought. Yeah, um, I'm really interested in the last four lines. Again, the blithering dead leaves along the ground, crooked sunlight falling, smoke black, wind, electric power failure woke me up. I broke the kitchen clock. Frank Hill and Judy, hungry in Zurich. He calls it Zurich. There's some, I think there's passages in this poem that are, uh, revealing in some sense of the interior world of Philip Whalen. And he doesn't ever say what they are. He presents them as kind of poundy and an image, you know, or events or actions. But they, they reg there's a lot of heartfelt something in this poem that's below the surface. There's a kind of bleakness at the end of this poem that maybe resonates. I don't know. It's yeah. kind of doing a psychological, yeah, you know, yeah, but the also, there they're so concrete. It's also Ginsbergian briefly. Crooked sunlight falling, smoke, black wind. You get the accumulation at the end of the monosyllables and the, the, right. the use of and it's, the, it's words as objects being stacked together. Yeah. You know, it's just like one word in these, in these lines. It's a very beautiful passage. It's a strong line. Yeah. Julia, final thought? I really love these three lines, the world being oblong with chrysanthemums. Yeah. And the chrysanthemums come back later in the poem, too. What did you think oblong meant? Well, I just, I read it at first literally, like a chrysanthemum is kind of a, an oblong oval shape, but you're shaking your head now. No, I've got it totally, totally round. Totally round. Oh, totally round. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a leap then. It's, it's actually, it's actually quite... A strange image if you're mm -hmm. describing a chrysanthemum as oblong and not totally round. Right. And there was something about those three lines that I couldn't help but think of a poem like H.D.'s Oread and seeing the the pines in the sea. Oh yeah. And I think 
I see the world in this in the Whalen poem, in this part of the Whalen poem, as also possibly referring to the sea, because then we get the sea a little further down on the page. So again, just echoing what has been said about words as objects being stacked on top of each other, and then the shapes of objects becoming the shape of the world is, is really striking to me there. Joanne, your final thought on any of this? I love the point where he just locates himself on Duxbury yeah. Point because I thought, well, at last I know where he is. Yeah. Duxbury Point is over there. It's the longest shale reef on the coast. So here would be a few thousand feet from there. What would here be the house? Here would be where he is living house. down at the house, Doss yeah. House downtown. Uh, and, and downtown was comparatively empty in those days. Yeah. There was very little action going on. Mm. And the wind blowing 35 miles an hour, and if you can look across the street and see the post office and see the raccoon going across the street, it just yeah. gives a sense of very real, you know, quiet, empty place that was um, Bellinus in those days and then. It's curious to me that he he says uh, ducks. Duxbury. Duxbury. Oh, yeah, he doesn't that's spell not, it right. That's not the way we, we, we locals... You say well, Duxbury? Duxbury. He's Duxbury. a bit of an outsider. So, but how, do, how do you yeah, actually spell it? Of, how do you actually spell it? You play, he spelled it correctly. Oh, you spell it right. But he yeah. pronounced it in the reading Duxbury. as if he were Duxbury. an outsider. Duxbury. Yeah. Yeah, as if it... Yeah, yeah. I, I think that sense of... I mean, it was just, as you say, a few years yeah. that he was here, and he didn't really mix in the town's politics or... So maybe this confusion, mess, and itchiness is coming back to Bellinus. Uh, I don't, I don't know uh, the days. I don't yeah. know. Um, my final thought follows from yeah. your comment, Steve, about the pronunciation of Duxbury, like an outsider. Even though it says "Life at Bellinus" and it's beautifully dedicated to patrons, yeah, which is you know, in it's a so way, classic. In a way, a poem you would think would be written years later when you look back on "Life at Bellinus" and those people who were nice to me. But it's contemporaneous yeah. with the generosity of these two people. Yeah, but it's I great. think you know life. Life at Bellinas, the last of California, and yet it's not a Bellinas poem. It's a world poem, as we've all pointed out. Um, we've got the reference to friends in Zurich, and of course to Kyoto, and and then the whole question of the future of civilization, not just of Bellinas. <laughs> yeah. um, and I really and, I like the, the cosmos. I wouldn't call it attention. I would call it like an inclusion of life at Bellinas, the last of whatever this is, kind of a farewell maybe, and all this other stuff going on that comes from elsewhere. And my favorite moment is what goes here, it's all caps, in the middle of uh, <laughs> some writing on the left and some writing on the right, oh, yeah. as if to say that one word more, which he's struggling later in the poem to produce... That might go there sometime. <laughs> well, that's nice. It's almost yeah. a if you lived here, you'd be here by you'd if be you home knew, by now. If you could moment. pronounce Duxbury properly, maybe you would know what word would go there. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's the writing. It's the poem about writing. Mm -hmm. And isn't it great? I mean, we have two people who really uh, know this town, and isn't it great that a visitor or someone who didn't spend that much time here and who can't pronounce the thing right? does, as Joanne says, just so movingly in the third to last and the last stanza really describe, and also in the surfer uh, passage, really describe what he sees as if he really does want to get this place. 
Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for all of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. So who would like to gather some paradise and make a recommendation? Julia? I would like to make a recommendation for Susan Lander's book, Franklinstein, which is another... She's another great poet who thinks a lot about place, and she's written a book-length poem about the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia, and it's it began as a mashup of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and two texts by Gertrude Stein, and then it became, if you can believe it, much more than that, and it's a very heterogeneous, documentary, lyric, uh, <laughs> visual kind of book, and it's completely gorgeous, and I can't get enough of it. That's fantastic. Thank you. And the, <laughs> it, the project is Franklinstein. Franklinstein, Franklin and it Stein. came out from Roof Books. Oh, boy. Fantastic. I think I saw that announced. Steve, you have a recommendation? You know, I'm, I'm going to have to be retrograde here. I'm just That's thinking okay. about um, what I've been reading. And I want to go back, into, back in history to uh, Edmund Spencer, but it's connected to this poem. Last week in uh, the class, we were talking about one of Spencer's sonnets, the Amoretti. I think it was number 76, maybe. And it begins, uh, One day I wrote her name upon the strand, but came the waves and washed it away, or washed it away, as the helpful <laughs> Norton put in an uh, accent over the E-D. So, you know, trying to write on the sand, and the wave comes and washes it away. Again, I, wa I wrote it with a second hand, and came the tide and made my pains its prey, or something like that. So Spencer has never been shouted out or gathered as paradise yet you know, in poem talk. Spencer's a poet whom uh, one could read with interest, actually. I never knew that either until uh, last year when I started to look at those poems in a little survey class. It's <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Great recommendation. Joanne, your Gathering Paradise? Um, comes to mind a, a recent book by the young, well, he's not so young anymore, poet Cedar Saigo, who's from uh, Washington State. He has a very elegant rhetoric mixed with uh, Bob Creeley's ear and John Wiener's flow um, so I said he's a Native American from from Washington State Suquamish tribe and but that doesn't predominate in his work his newest book is coming out from Wave Press called Royals and um, I always find him full of a beautiful density of an appreciation of language fantastic uh, my Gathering Paradise, which has been swirling around in my head because I've been sitting here looking across at the two of you, Steve and Julia, and the backyard. Do you call this a backyard? <laughs> I want to... Gathering... How can I gather paradise and mention a book of poems or a poet when I'm staring at paradise? May this always be exactly the way oh it boy. is now. Yeah. And if any people Ugh. who have any plans to develop Bellinus are hearing Please. this poem talk, chances are slim that they are. Them then please call you up. The, call me up or <laughs> do, do whatever you have to to keep this yeah. thing 
Little oh boy. Going exactly the way it is. Well, that's all the total failure of civilization we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> oh, darn. Poem Talk, Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Steve Ratcliffe, Julia Block, and Joanne Kiger, and Stephen once again for hosting us at his house here, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner. Chris Martin and Lily Applebaum, and to Poem Talk's editor, the self-same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, back in Philadelphia, Rachel Zoff, Ron Silliman, and Charles Bernstein will join me in talking about two poems by the now 98-year-old poet Naomi Raplansky, someone who met Gertrude Stein in person in 1934, Wow! now 98. Hmm. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us for that for <laughs> another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>